Well, friends, when we last left Jesus in the narrative of Mark's gospel, he had been condemned by the decree of the Roman governor Pilate to die by crucifixion. What remains in the gospel of Mark is Jesus' intense suffering to the point of death, his burial, and then his glorious resurrection. But because of some recent providences among us, of which you are well aware, I want to depart from Mark's gospel for at least today and maybe for a few weeks to deal with a subject that is very much neglected in our day, but I think very timely for us. And I think that is the subject of heaven. The teaching about heaven and hell is not very common and not very popular in our day. And if we ask, why is that? I think we can answer, well, for some reasons that have always been true, and for some that are true in light of the current spirit of our age. Why is heaven a neglected topic today? Well, since the fall of man, the Bible says in Romans 1.18 that man has had a tendency to suppress the truth of God, to push it down. And one of the truths that the human heart suppresses is the truth stated in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in our hearts. People desperately want to avoid the fact that they're going to face God in judgment. And to do that, they want to deny that there is a life to come. And they try to suppress the truth that God has put eternity in their hearts and try to believe that after death, there is nothing, just oblivion. And one of the philosophies that has fed this denial of life after death is the lie of macroevolution. The idea that we have not been created by a personal creator, but we have essentially come out of nothing. It's a naturalistic worldview that views human beings as simply a complex of chemical processes. And in that philosophy, then there is no soul that lives on beyond this life. And so there is no heaven and hell. And evolution has fed that lie that man wants to believe, that he doesn't have to face God in judgment and face eternity. And then there's been the influence of liberal theology in the 20th century. Liberal theology has abandoned Orthodox Christianity. They've essentially gutted the Christian life and the Christian message of the supernatural. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection and return of Christ. They have gutted Christianity of all that is supernatural. And of course, there's no focus for them on heaven. They focus on what has been called a social gospel, just trying to better people in their present material earthly life. Perhaps a, a recent iteration of that is the social justice movement. And then there is the prosperity gospel, which certainly is not otherworldly in its focus, but it's definitely focused on this world, living your best life now and being healthy and wealthy and prosperous materially in this life. And then a further reason heaven is not a focus in many pulpits is the psychologizing of Christianity. We've turned from an otherworldly focus. We've turned from an outward focus and an upward focus to an inward focus. And in recent decades, there's been a great deal of emphasis on the self, self-esteem, self-love, self-image, self-actualization, and that self-focus doesn't turn you outward to others, and it turn, doesn't turn you upward with a view to eternity and heaven. But despite the spirit of our age and despite the tendency of the human heart to suppress the truth of God, 
when we come to the Bible, which is our touchstone of truth and reality, we find that the future destiny of heaven is not something of secondary importance, but it is central to the life of the believer, not with a view to the believer escaping the challenges and trials and responsibilities of life. As some liberals would say, heaven is just, you know, pie in the sky by and by. No, that's not why the Bible has an emphasis on heaven, but it gives us that emphasis in order to enable us to endure this life and to look forward with hope to the life that comes after this life. And so we want to talk about heaven. The first thing that we want to note is what does the Bible mean when it uses the word heaven? The Greek word oranos is the word from which we get the name of the one planet, Uranus. And it's used essentially in three ways. When heaven is spoken of in the Bible, first it refers to the atmospheric heavens, the area of breathable air. Matthew 16, 2, when it is evening, Jesus says, you see, you say it will be fair weather for the sky, literally the heaven is red. Or in Mark 14, 62, the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Or in Matthew 6, look at the birds of the heaven. So in one sense, heaven is the atmospheric heaven. It's the place where the clouds are and where the birds fly. That's one use of heaven. But then there is the starry heaven the place where the planets are and the stars beyond the atmospheric heaven. Hebrews eleven twelve speaks of the descendants of Abraham, as many as the stars of heaven in number. And sometimes heaven and earth is spoken of together as the entire created universe. Jesus says in Mark 13, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But those are not the heavens we're interested in this morning and perhaps following, not the atmospheric heavens, not the starry heaven, but there's a third use of heaven. It is the abode of God. That's what Paul speaks of when he speaks in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, of the third heaven, the heaven into which he was taken up. This is the heaven where God dwells. Stephen, in his sermon in Acts 6, quotes Isaiah 66, where Yahweh says, heaven is my throne. Heaven is the place from which Christ has come. John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 1 Corinthians 15.47, the first man, that would be Adam, is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. This is also the place from which the Holy Spirit is sent. Jesus, or Peter says, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It's the heaven that is the abode of angels, Mark 12, 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That's where angels live. Heaven is the place to which Christ ascended and where he is now in Acts 3, 21. Whom heaven, referring to Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. And it is the heaven from which Christ will return someday. Second Thessalonians 1, 7, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with the mighty angels in flaming fire. Heaven is the place where the departed souls of Old Testament and New Testament saints go after death. Colossians 1, 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven. And Peter speaks 
of obtaining an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. If you're a believer, you have, as it were, reservations in heaven. You know, you're going on a trip, you make reservations for a, a hotel. Well, if you're a believer, you have a reservation made for you in heaven because that's where we're going after this life. Now, heaven is not our ultimate destination. I often call attention to the fact that our ultimate destination is going to be under a new heavens and a new earth. But heaven is the place we immediately go after this life. And we don't want to neglect this teaching, even though it is very much neglected in our day. And this morning, I want to focus on one aspect of heaven, our relationships in heaven. And essentially, there are three. A relationship with God, a relationship with one another, and a relationship with angels. Now, I'm not going to deal with angels because the Bible says very little about what our relationship with angels will be. But I want to talk this morning about what will our relationship be with God in heaven and what will it be with one another in heaven. You know, some people live very transient lives. They move around a lot. I had a wonderful conversation for probably 45 minutes, an hour, with a dear brother from another state who's interested in our church and moving back to Lancaster County. And he and his family had been all over the country in several different states. And for people who move to a new location, there are several things they want to find out about the location to which they're going. You want to find out something about the climate and the weather, right? What's the weather going to be like? Do you like warm weather? Do you like cold weather? Well, there's a difference whether you move to Los Angeles or Boston, right? You want to find out something about the geography. What's the lay of the land? Is it rugged mountains like we see when we go to California? Or is it the, the plush greenery of, we have here in the Northeast? You want to find out what services will be available to you. You know, where will I have access to various supermarkets and other places for shopping? But perhaps the most important question you want to ask when you're moving to a new location is what are the people like? What kind of relationships will I have, especially who will be my most immediate neighbors? I commend to you that you answer that question before you move into a certain location. We are social beings. And we love community by nature. One fear that Southerners might have in moving up north is they're told, you know, people up north, up north, they're not as warm and friendly as people down south. I had a, we knew a man who was from New Jersey like I am, and he once saw a bumper sticker on a car in New Jersey that said, welcome to New Jersey, now go home. I can say that because I'm from New Jersey. But, you know, people are different, and they relate differently in different parts of even our country, right? And so, as we anticipate someday going to our heavenly home, a good question to ask is, who are the inhabitants of heaven? What kind of relationships will we have in heaven? So let's consider first our relationship to God. The Bible is clear that our primary relationship in heaven will be with God himself, which includes the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how the prospect of heaven is consistently spoken of. Jesus in John 14, For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Heaven is where Jesus is and where we will be with him. 
in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, as he anticipates his hope of heaven, and he's stating what he prefers. He says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. The moment your soul leaves your body and you are absent from your body, you are at home with the Lord. And as you know, similarly in Philippians 1, where Paul's life is hanging in the balance, he may be facing execution at the hands of a Roman executioner. And he also states his preference having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. He's not going into a state of soul sleep. If his head has to roll from his body, he will be instantaneously with Christ. Other statements in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, at the return of Christ, both those who have already died and those who are still alive will meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And in Revelation 21, granted, this is talking about the new earth and the new heavens, but it says, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And 21, 22 says, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb are its temple. From the beginning, God has manifested his presence to his people. Under the old covenant, he manifested himself first in the building known as the tabernacle. Later, Solomon built a temple, and there God manifested his his visible presence, the Shekinah glory among his people. In the New Testament, we have the statement in John 1 that Jesus literally tabernacled among us. God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus pitched his tent among us, and he was here, but he was here only for a short time, and he was very spatially located, and only a relative small number of people got to see him and interact with him in the flesh. Where is God now? Where might you find the special presence of God now? Well, his omnipresence is everywhere. There's no place, Psalm 139 says, you can, you can get away from God. You can go to the depths of the sea, and he's there. You cannot Get away from God. You can't hide from God. That's his omnipresence. But where is his special presence? The Bible answers. When Paul speaks to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, he says, if anyone destroys or corrupts God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that temple you, plural, are. He's talking to a gathered church. You, the gathered people of God, are the present place of God's abiding, God's special presence. The church is his temple. And so right now, as we meet one of his many churches, but in heaven, it will be the presence of God in the most ultimate way. He will be immediately with his, his people, physically with his present people, pervasively in heaven. God will permeate heaven And his presence is known there in a way that is not known in this life. And there, our relationship with him 
will be the primary relationship. And what will it consist in? Three things I point out to you. Our relationship to God in heaven. First of all, there will be unbroken fellowship with God in heaven. John, in John 17, 3, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not simply endless life. It's a quality of life. It's a relationship of God, knowing God. And the amazing thing that you as a Christian can say, I know God. Now, you don't know him exhaustively. We will never know an infinite God exhaustively, but we know God. This is the essence of eternal life, that they may know him, the Father and Jesus Christ. We know God now. We have fellowship with God now, fellowship with Jesus Christ now. But aren't we aware that our fellowship with him now is so marred? There are so many distractions. There's sin coming at us from the world. Temptations coming at us from the world. There's plenty of sin coming out of us that breaks or hinders our fellowship with God. But in heaven, it will not be so. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says, Now I know in part, then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Our knowledge of God, which is real in this life as believers, will be maximized to the point where we will fully, he will fully know us. We will know him as fully as a creature can. And that fellowship will be perfect and unbroken in heaven. Far better than what we have now. But not only unbroken fellowship with God, but unbounded joy in God. Perfect fellowship means perfect joy. Psalm 16.1 says, in God's presence, in your presence is fullness of joy. And in Revelation 23, 21, 3, we read, and again, this is the new heaven and the new earth, but we read of this in 21, 4, which is our ultimate destination. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In God's immediate, undiminished, immediate presence, there will be unbounded joy, undiminished, undistracted, perfect joy. And Jesus' intention for us from the beginning is joy. He says in John 15 that I want your joy to be full. And one day it will be perfectly full. Nothing to hinder or diminish the pure joy that we will experience in God's presence. J.C. Ryle said, heaven is the eternal presence of everything that can make a saint happy and the eternal absence of everything that can cause you sorrow. Think of the things, and there are so many, that bring sorrow to our hearts now and weigh them down every day. Not a trace, not a taint of that will be in heaven. Only pure, unbounded joy. And then there will be unceasing worship and service in heaven. You see, heaven will not be a place, is not a place now of passivity and inactivity. Now, there's a lot we don't know about heaven, but we do have glimpses. Occasionally, God pulls back the curtain and he gives us a little glimpse of what is happening in heaven. The book of Revelation is such a, a glimpse. And what we see 
is that when we view the saints in heaven, they are engaged in adoring worship. Listen to Revelation 4, 1 to 4. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the voice, first voice, which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And then jumping down to 10 and 11, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they created and were created. If those 24 elders represent the church from the Old and New Covenant, 24, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, it seems to be a picture of the redeemed church in heaven. And what are they doing? They're around the throne worshiping God. And they're worshiping here as creator. But if you look at chapter 5, they worship him in another way. In chapter 5, verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break the seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. There, they're worshiping God not as creator, but as redeemer. So what are the saints now doing in heaven? They're worshiping God as creator and redeemer. But there's more than just verbal worship. We get the sense that those in heaven are are serving God. We don't know how, but, but there's active service for God. In Revelation 22 and verse 3, and again, this is the new heavens, but it says, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. They're serving God. It's the word for religious service. It's the word used of the priest performing sacred service in the temple, and and people are serving God in heaven. Now, how the saints are going to serve God in heaven is is not clear. Revelation 22.5 says they will reign forever and ever. In Matthew 19.28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. How we will serve God is not clear, but it's not a passive place. It's not sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, doing nothing. It's filled with worship of God as creator and savior and actively serving him. And so our relationship to God in heaven, where all believers are headed, will consist of unbroken fellowship with him, unbounded joy in him, unceasing worship of him, and unceasing worship 
to him. Well, brothers and sisters, if that's the case, if that's where we're going, what does that mean for us now? If that's where you're going to spend eternity, what, how does that impinge on the way you live now? Well, if you're going to know unbroken fellowship with God in heaven, should we not be cultivating fellowship with God now? Perhaps as the most intimate fellowship that we know? I remember one person saying, I want to know God more than I know anybody else. What a goal that is. We should be cultivating our fellowship with God now in our praying and in our seeking him in his word. If we're going to experience unbounding joy in God forever, should we not be finding our greatest joy now in God and in the things of God? There are a lot of things that make us happy. But shouldn't our greatest, deepest joys be the things connected to God and his kingdom? And if we are to give ourselves eternally to worshiping and serving God, shouldn't we be doing that now? And I remind you that worship is not something we do an hour and a half on Sunday. You know, Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. In Romans 12, present your body a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship. Everything you do with your body and with the members of your body, every moment of your life is an act of worship devoted to God. And we're to do it unto him. Let's be worshiping him now because that's what we're going to do in all eternity. Let's be serving him now. You've all been given gifts to serve the body of Christ and to win a lost world. We're going to be serving God. Let's be serving him now. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, I want to say this. This heaven, as it's described, would not be heaven to you. If heaven is enjoying the fellowship of God and having joy and delight in God and worshiping and serving God, if you don't know God in this life, heaven would be hell for you. Heaven will not be a desirable place for you. But I want to tell you that that can change. Every one of us here who is a believer was at one point in time not a believer in Jesus, not a lover of Jesus, not a worshiper of Jesus. Every single one of us at one point saw no beauty in Jesus, nothing desirable in Jesus. How did it change? In the same way it can change for you. You've got to see yourself as a lost, hell-bound sinner. And you've got to see Jesus as my only escape from hell, my only rescue, my only hope by his death on the cross. And when you come to him, as many of us by grace did at various times in our history, we put our faith in Jesus. He forgave us. He changed us. And he changed our whole relationship to him so that now we love him, now we worship him, now we serve him. It is our delight. And so heaven is something we look forward to because it's just a betterment of this life. But if heaven is going to be heaven to you, God has got to become your God, and Jesus has to become your Savior now in this life. But now let's consider, secondly, our relationship to others. God and the Lamb of God, the Savior, are central to heaven. It is God's presence that makes heaven heaven, and they ought to be central to us now as we experience a foretaste of heaven. But whereas God is the central person in heaven, he is not the only person. All the redeemed men and women, boys and girls, are there as well. 
And what will our relationship be to our fellow believers? I want to mention three things. First, there will be recognition of one another in heaven and in the new heavens and new earth. We will know each other. What are some arguments that show that we will recognize one another in heaven? First of all, the resurrected body of Jesus was the prototype of our resurrection body. And the the resurrected body of Jesus, which is the body like we will receive, was recognizable. Now, I'm aware that Mary at the tomb for a time did not recognize him. And for a time, the two men on the road to Emmaus had their eyes blinded and they didn't at first recognize him. But remember in John 20, when Jesus appeared to his disciples and at first John or Thomas was not there. And he said, I won't believe unless I you know, put my finger in the nail holes in his hands and the wound in his side. Eight days later, Jesus appears again. And what does he do? He says, reach forth your hand, Thomas, and touch. You know, flesh, uh, spirit does not have flesh and bones or flesh and blood like you see me have. And Jesus was recognizable to Thomas. In Acts 1.11, we read, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He will return, in other words, in the same form, the same bodily form in which he left the same form that he now retains in heaven. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah somehow were recognizable to the disciples, right? They recognized this is Moses and Elijah. Now, did Moses have the Decalogue? Did Elijah have, I don't know, was he hairy or some? But but he recognized those men. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20 when it comes to recognizing one another in heaven. Apostle Paul makes an interesting statement to the believers in Thessalonica. He says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. What Paul is saying is when we all get to heaven, I'm going to be there. You Thessalonians are going to be there. And Jesus is going to recognize that I invested in your lives, that I was the instrument used to bring you to salvation, and I will be rewarded with treasure in heaven for what I've done to invest in you. Jesus will see it, and so you see that Paul will be there, the Thessalonians believers will be there. They will be a joy and a crown to him. That all points to the fact that they will be recognizable individuals. We will recognize one another in heaven. Somehow we will maintain our unique individuality and appearance, and yet our bodies will not be marred with sin. And there will be reunion. How could there be recognition without reunion? The saints of God, we who are believers, we have a sense of union and communion with each other like like none other on the earth. Like I said before, we are all social beings, aren't we? Man craves society. And people socialize all over the place. They've got to. And so we see sports teams with a certain camaraderie. Baseball players high-five each other. Football players butt helmets. When you see a team win a championship, they're climbing all over each other. There's a a oneness. We're the same team. There's a unity among fans of, of the same team. There's camaraderie in civic organizations, the Rotary Club, the Lions Club. In colleges, we have fraternities and sororities because people congregate and socialize together. There are bands of brothers on the battlefield, men who have faced 
war together are, are tightly knit in a band of fellowship. Even motorcycle gangs, they tend to be outcasts and they find each other and, and there's a camaraderie, even barstool buddies. But there's no fellowship that compares to the fellowship of the saints. It is called fellowship in the spirit. Why? It is the only fellowship on earth that is spiritual and supernatural. It's grounded in the fact that we have a shared life in God. It doesn't matter what color we are. It doesn't matter what our educational background, what our cultural background is. What glues us together is we have a shared life in Jesus Christ. And that's the foundational glue. That's the fellowship in the spirit. It's the deepest bond on planet earth. We have that now with one another. We even have it to some degree with the departed saints. You ever wonder about that hymn in the church's one foundation that speaks of our mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one? There's something to that. We are immortal and our fellowship with God will continue into eternity and our fellowship with each other, which has begun here, will continue into eternity. In the Old Testament, there's an oft-repeated phrase of being gathered to one's people. Genesis 25, 8, it says, Abraham breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. In Matthew 8, 11, Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And when he established the Lord's Supper, what did he say? I won't drink of this cup again until I drink with you in my father's kingdom. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, it says when Jesus returns, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep and we will, who are alive will be caught up together with them and we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. There were believers who thought that their departed loved ones had missed out on the return of Christ and we won't see them again. He said, no, when Jesus returns, they will be the first to be raised and there will be a glorious reunion and we will be with each other in the Lord's presence. What will that fellowship be like? It will be all that Christian fellowship is now, but inexpressibly better. What is our fellowship like now? What makes it unique? When we talk to one another, as we say in common promise, we get one another. The spiritual things are foolishness to the unbeliever. They don't, they don't get it, right? The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. But when we talk to one another, we, we get one another when we're talking about spiritual things. Because we have the Spirit, we have the mind that understands the things of God. And, and, and we, our minds flow together in the same truths. Our hearts resonate with a lot of the same joys. They weep for some of the same sad things. We share a lot of mutual desires and goals and longings. Our companionship on earth is of the deepest strain because it is fellowship in the spirit. Well, this will continue in heaven, but it will be unblemished. There are things that mar our fellowship with each other now. Pride, our jealousy, our misunderstandings, our disagreements, our unforgiveness, every other sin. But there, there will be no such hang-ups. We will not talk too much or talk too little. We will not have the social awkwardness that some of us have. We will not be too self-centered. Our fellowship will be perfect and unblemished, stimulating and aliving. 
And we will have fellowship with saints of history, all the saints of the Bible, all the saints who have lived throughout history. We will have fellowship with them. And of course, the greatest choice, because God is good and he knows our frame, greatest joys will have to be to be reunited with those loved ones, those fathers, those mothers, those sons and daughters, those brothers, those sisters, those dear friends who have died in Christ. God will not withhold the special joy of that reunion with them. But then finally, there will also be resurrection, ultimately. The Bible speaks of the fact that ultimately heaven is not our, our goal, but we will have transformed bodies, resurrected bodies, like that of the Lord Jesus. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And Peter tells us that these new resurrected bodies will live on a new renovated earth. Second Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the picture seems to be that there will be both continuity and discontinuity. This earth is going to be made new, but it's still going to be the same earth. It's still going to be recognizable as this earth. Continuity, but drastic improvement. Same with our bodies, as with Jesus. There's going to be continuity and discontinuity. It's going to be a new body. It's going to be a spiritual body, totally governed by the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a blemishless body. And yet it's going to be us, somehow. We'll be recognizable. Continuity and discontinuity. One of the changes in heaven is there will no longer be any marriage. Luke 20, we will be like the angels. That shouldn't make you sad because the fact is there will be no need for the intimacy of marriage, no need for procreation, and the fellowship in heaven will be so perfect across the boards that the intimacy that marriage affords will simply not be needed. Some have speculated that you may have a special relationship with the one who has been your spouse. And if you've lost a spouse and had a second spouse, perhaps a special relationship. Certainly no jealousy. We can trust God that it will be better. You know, as I close, words cannot express and imagination cannot conceive what heaven is going to be like. C.S. Lewis spoke of the futility of trying to explain the joys and the perfection of heaven when he said it's kind of like explaining to a kid enjoying playing in a mud puddle what it'd be like to enjoy a holiday at the beach. Imagine some little ghetto kid really enjoying himself in a mud puddle. You would despair of trying to explain to this kid the vast white sand, the blue sky, the ocean waves gently lapping the shore, he would not have the ability to comprehend. And even so, we're like a little ghetto kid playing in the mud puddle of this life. and We cannot conceive the joys that await us in heaven, but we can trust God and Jesus that it will be unimaginably better.
The best I try to do to try to explain it is to compare the difference between our non-Christian life and our Christian life, especially if you were converted as an adult or young adult. When you are wallowing around in sin, in bondage to sin, enslaved to sin, with guilt and fear, fear of death, you couldn't have imagined the life that God has given you, the forgiveness of sins, the power over sin, the relationships of friendship with other Christians, the hope of heaven. You couldn't have imagined that new life when you were living the old life. Well, even now, with the first installment of new life, we can't begin to imagine what it's going to be. But we can perfectly trust Jesus, who only tells the truth and is only good. If you earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father? And so we trust him who said, I go to prepare a place for you. And then I love these words. And I repeat them to Brother Jim, as I've repeated them at the bedside of a number of saints through the years. And I would want repeated at my bedside, if it were not so, I would have told you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for clinging to this earth. We do. We're not heavenly minded enough. But thank you for the hope of heaven. Though we cannot conceive it, we know you are nothing but truth. And if the Christian life is so much better than our life in sin, how unimaginably better is the consummation of this salvation in heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Comfort those who are facing the enemy death head on in these days and comfort all of us with your 